at verses 15 through 21 of John chapter 6, but we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to study it in parallel with Matthew 14, 22 through 23, or 33 rather. Well, let's start by reading John 6, 15 through 21. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, remember the feeding of the 5,000, really more like 15, 20,000, with wives and children. They're so blown away by this massive miracle of the feeding of all these thousands of people that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Let's pray. Father, this is a, another one of those great, great Bible stories. There's so many. And yet we hope that we can get some new insight, a new take on it. We ask you to speak to our hearts today by your Holy Spirit, through the power of your living word. We ask you to bless this time of Bible study together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we delve into this event, this next event, in the disciples' three-year journey with Jesus, I think it's interesting to point out that which is not included in John's narrative. And what would that be? Peter walking on the water. Now, I'm dealing in the realm of speculation here, but it is possible that John's ongoing rivalry with Peter, we see that throughout the Gospels. They were two of the three men closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And Peter and John were always in competition to see who could be Jesus' best buddy. And we saw when at the tomb, after Christ had risen from the dead, and Mary Magdalene comes back and brings a report that Jesus' body is gone, it's missing, and so forth. Peter and John got into a foot race to see who could get to the tomb first. You remember that? And one of the things I really love and appreciate about the Bible, that even though it's God's Word, it's God-breathed, all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. God allows the personalities and individualism of the writers to come out in the Scriptures. Because God didn't create us to be robots. He created us in His image. We have intelligence. We have free will. And so he allows the personalities of the writers to come through. And so you have to wonder, why did John leave out about the part about Peter walking in on the water? Now, it also could be because Matthew and Mark mentioned this in their Gospels, and so he didn't see the need to reiterate it because John's Gospel was the last one written towards the end of the first century. Matthew and Mark and Luke were written earlier. So he might have excluded it for that reason, but I am suspicious that John may not have wanted to give credit to Peter for walking on the water. All right, let's, let's get into this now. We're going to look, again, I'm going to read 6.15 through 17 one more time. 
Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Now, we pick it up here in Matthew 14, 22. Matthew delves a little more deeply into the timeline. Matthew says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Immediately seems to indicate that right after the conclusion of the miraculous feeding of the 5, 10, 15, 20,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat to get away from the overly exuberant crowd. And they might have been reluctant too because keep in mind... They were probably still on cloud nine because of the miracle that they had just participated in. They, they were hands-on involved in that miracle as Jesus gave them each a couple of pieces of bread, a piece of fish, and told them to distribute it amongst the crowd, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And they were an integral part of that. So they're still probably somewhat out in the ozone. You can imagine how that would impact you to be a part of that. And then not only that... We saw last week how everyone got their fill. Have you ever gotten your fill? I get my fill really too often. I definitely got my fill on Thanksgiving. But when you get your fill, it's like, it's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? That's how you know you got your fill. So it could have been the disciples also uh, were just a little uh, overloaded, too full of loaves and fishes. But anyway, Jesus takes action here. He, he tells the crowd to leave. He gets them in the boat and tells them to go before him to the other side towards Capernaum. That's what uh, Matthew 14.34 says. That's what we read here. Or in Mark 64, it says, uh, 6.45, it says Bethsaida. They're both up in that uh, north to northeast part of Sea of Galilee region. The quickest, easiest way to get back and forth across the Sea of Galilee was by boat. And also the best way to temporarily extract themselves from the unrelenting crowds. So he gets them on the boat. He sends the multitudes away. The party's over. Nothing to see here. Go home. God bless you. Me bless you. Did you get that? Okay. Oh, I'm hot. And you're not. I don't know. They put that underneath there. I don't know if I like it there or not. Maybe it is good. I mean, it's a good idea. All I know is I'm hot. Okay. How's everybody out there temperature-wise? Good? Okay. It's always hotter up here. Heat rises, as you know. Okay. Verse 23 of Matthew 14. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. And that's not a sad thing. Jesus longed for and looked for any and every opportunity to be alone with his Father. Rejuvenation, refreshing, recharging his spiritual batteries. An example for all of us to follow, really. As you probably heard me say this many times, but you cannot give out that which you've not taken in. If we want to be useful vessels to God... Now, to be saved, what do we have to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And you will be saved. 
But if you want to be effective for God here on earth, then we need to follow the example of Jesus and spend time with the Father, receiving from Him. Oftentimes, I think as believers, we look at prayer as our opportunity to spill our guts on God, right? To either complain to God, plead with God, beg God, whatever, but we perhaps not often enough do we see that as an opportunity for us to hear from God, to receive from God, right? To see what God has to say. And a really good way to do that is if you have your Bible there while you're praying, because the most reliable voice that we hear from God is the one that we hear through His Holy Scriptures. When you depart from that, there's always the opportunity for your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own feelings, your own emotions to get involved in the process. And so if you ever think you're hearing something from God that doesn't sound quite right, like Sarah Young, <laughs> Jesus Calling, you need to measure it against the Scriptures. And don't ever be embarrassed, ashamed, or afraid to look into the Word of God and find out, oh, well, I was wrong. I blew it. Nothing wrong with that. The worst thing you can do is to begin to live in your own self-deception. That's the worst thing. Uh, we're all imperfect, flawed, sinful human beings. We all can get it wrong, and we all do get it wrong at times. So make sure you measure those things you think you might be hearing from God by His Word because His Word is 100% absolutely reliable. Okay. So Jesus, after He gets rid of everybody, it's kind of like the mom who sends the kids off to school, dad goes to work, whew, finally get a breather here, unless she's a working mom, and then unfortunately... No breather. But that opportunity, you know, to be, and we shouldn't be afraid to be alone either, by the way. I think some people are. They have to have something going on around them constantly. My wife's probably going to say, were you talking about yourself this morning? <laughs> always got to be busy. Always got to be listening to something, reading something, talking to somebody, and even if it's yourself. You know, I used to worry about that until I read somewhere that talking to yourself was actually a sign of intelligence, and then I was really encouraged. <laughs> but one of the dynamics and phenomenons of this life that we live is that people who are alone don't want to be alone. They want to have somebody, a companion, a helpmeet, a soulmate, what have you, and then the ones that find that then want to be alone. Because <laughs> we're never satisfied. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, learn to, to, to be content in whatever place you find yourself. When you came to Christ, were you single? Don't seek, seek to be married. I've been finding myself a lot, praying a lot lately for the single people in our church, and there's a lot of them. And I know that can be a hard place to be in. But you know what's the worst place to be in? Being with somebody that you shouldn't be with. Making a bad choice, a wrong decision, becoming unequally yoked. And I've seen it over and over and over again. People talk themselves into, oh, I think he's a Christian. I'm pretty sure she's a Christian. They said they were. And then you get married and you find out, no, they're not. 
They're not a Christian, and they don't want to be a Christian, and they don't want you to be a Christian. So now that loneliness that you were so desperate to shed yourself of, you're, you're, you want it back so bad you can taste it. Learn to be content where you're at. All the single folks think the answer to happiness is to be married, and a lot of the married folks think the answer is to not be married. Let's be honest. The divorce rate proves it. Okay? I'm not saying... Paul said, hey, if you can, remain single like me, but it's better to marry than to burn with lust. God did create us with normal, natural human desires... We live in a very complicated world today. And everybody and their brother's got a ton of baggage. And you better realize, if you hook yourself up to that person, all the baggage goes with it. Okay? I don't know how we got into this from that. <laughs> but there you are. I rely upon the Holy Spirit to tell me what to say. Wow. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Woo! Okay, so this, this is the scenario. The party's over. Feeding of the 5,000, done, over with. Everybody's stuffed to the gills. Jesus tells the crowd, go home. Tells the disciples, get on the boat. Meet me on the other side. And then, John 6, 18, the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And from what I've heard and seen, that's a very common occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 14, 24 says, The boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Tossed by the waves, it means grievously agitated, plunged under by the waves, frequently covered with them, the waves often breaking over the vessel. Pretty scary. The disciples' boat had been blown off course by the storm, the Sea of Galilee is between 5 and 6 miles wide and 16 to 18 miles long. That's about the distance from here to the west side. It's a pretty big body of water. Its total area is 64.4 square miles at its fullest. And its maximum depth is approximately 141 feet. And they're right out in the middle of it. Verse 19 of John 6. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. So they're fighting against the storm. They've rowed about three or four miles trying to make land. The fact that they were rowing tells us this was not a very large boat and had no sails, apparently. And the waves are coming up over them. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. Something only God could do. Job 9.8. This is a cool verse. He, God alone, spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And here he is doing just that in human form. And his, through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, Matthew gives further details. It, he tells us now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. 
The watches start at 6 p.m. The Jews often divided the night into three watches, but the Romans had four. And the fourth or final shift of the night watch was between 3 and 6 a.m. So sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus went to them walking on the sea. You've heard the old expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. They would not have been able to see him clearly, and as we will see here in the next verse, they initially believe him to be a ghost or a phantom. It tells us they were afraid, and Matthew tells us why in verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled couldn't get a clear view of him but you don't normally see anybody walking on the water right saying it's a ghost and they cried out for fear now you might be a little bit shocked but belief in ghosts specters phantoms that's nothing new as you know it's been going on for thousands of years but this this tells us the disciples although they were coming along pretty well in their training they were still holding on to some of the old superstitions both the Old and New Testament. We talked about our New Covenant, our Old Covenant, New Testament, Old Testament. Both sections of God's Holy Scriptures teach that the dead either go to one of two places, Paradise or Hades. They don't hang around here, although we have a multitude of horror movies and so forth depicting those kinds of things. The only plausible, rational, biblical explanation is that we would be dealing with demonic entities. No matter how kind or nice that so-called spirit relative might be, I mean, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Light is a good thing, right? Jesus said, men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So what does the devil do? He masquerades as an angel of light. The Bible clearly prohibits any and all attempts to contact the dead. Leviticus 19.31, this is from the New English translation. Do not turn to the spirits of the dead and do not seek familiar spirits to become unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And there's a footnote from the New English Translation that says the prohibition here concerns those who would seek special knowledge through the spirits of the dead, whether the dead in general or dead relatives in particular. We've seen this depicted in numerous films and so forth. If you ever saw the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe, the lead character, he's got all these little figurines of his family members and he puts them out on the chest there and praise to them and so forth but that's a pagan thing pagans have done it for thousands of years but not those who worship the god of abraham isaac and jacob uh, speaking of christianity today this is actually a good article that they published just two months ago september 11 2023 four in ten evangelicals what's an evangelical that's a Christian who believes in preaching the gospel, winning the lost, to evangelize. 
You might be shocked to find that not all people under the so-called Christian umbrella believe in that. Some people call that proselytizing. There's two things we don't talk about in this family, and they are politics and religion, right? That's why there's a certain group within the church identified as evangelicals, because not everybody who identifies as a Christian believes in evangelizing. We would be under that category of evangelicals, right? So here's the deal. This even actually makes it even scarier when you define it that way. Again, Christianity Today, the writer was Kate Shelnut. September 11, 2023, 4 in 10 evangelicals say they've been visited by the dead. Despite Scripture's warning against communication from beyond the grave, most consider hearing from loved ones to be a comfort in their grief. Now, if some entity showed up masquerading as my dead father or mother or what have you, I wouldn't be comforted. I would be very concerned, and I would rebuke it in Jesus' name. But four out of ten folks, that's almost half of the evangelical community. Say they've been visited by the dead. If there's anybody here today like that, please come and talk to me. We need to pray for you because that just ain't right. And here's where it really goes over the edge. This is why you have to be a Berean. You have to search the scriptures daily. You have to test the spirits to see if they be of God. Calvary Chapel affiliate pastor Steve Berger from Tennessee encourages praying or talking to the dead. He wrote a book called Have Heart even has a website, Have Heart website. This was a number of years ago now, but it's still very much controversial. I spoke last summer with Warren Smith about this. Um, there are a number of people like Warren in the apologetic community or the defending the faith community and so forth that have tried to talk to this guy. He's actually become very influential in Washington, D.C. with the politicians and so forth. But his son died a few years ago. His church isn't called Calvary Chapel, but it is or was affiliated with Calvary Chapel. And he and his wife lost their, I think he was a teenager, lost their son. And then they began to claim that they saw him coming into the church. And they were interacting with him. And even had, I think, another staff member claim that they also saw him. You see the massive deception that you can fall under if you don't watch, watch out? And even with our, our own movement, the Calvary Chapel movement, nobody is immune, nobody is exempt. We're warned by... <coughs> a bug just flew into my mouth. Could it be Satan? Okay, now I'm woke. I'm eating bugs, I'm woke! That really happened. That just happened. Ah. I 
Uh, I can still feel it in there. <laughs> Satan or Beelzebub is the Lord of the Flies. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow, I guess I hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> I'm not sure what else I was going to say, but we'll just move on. Okay. So they're freaked out. They're scared. But Jesus said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. John 6, 20. Matthew 14, 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Folks, this is such a valuable thing to know and to understand. How can you tell, again, Jesus calling, another Jesus calling, yada, yada. How can you tell that Jesus is the one you're hearing from? He always ministers peace and comfort to us. He never guilt, fear, or condemnation. If you're experiencing that, it's either coming from your own feelings and emotions or it's coming from the devil, okay? Jesus is all about comfort, about peace, for his people. John 14, 27, Jesus told the disciples as he's preparing for his departure from this world, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, not a peace that's based on situations and circumstances and feelings and emotions, it's the peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Neither, neither let, your, let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Just some really good, basic, fundamental things. If we could just learn them, grab onto them, hold on to them. If there ain't no peace, there ain't no Jesus in the house, Okay. Because he is the Prince of Peace. He promised us peace. And so he's now administering peace to these disciples who were scared out of their wits. And not surprisingly, guess who speaks up? Matthew 14, 28. Again, John doesn't cover this for whatever reason. We know that John's Gospel is a whole different ballgame from the three synoptic Gospels that all follow the same basic storyline, which is really cool because we get confirmation from one writer to the other. But John was a whole different animal, if you will. He winds up being the one to whom Jesus gives his revelation, which is a very wild book, as we know. We studied it for a couple of years. And so John was cut from a different cloth. And so God used him in a very unique way to reveal things to us about Jesus Christ that are not brought out so w well or so specifically in the other Gospels. And conversely, some things that he omits, the other writers get. And so that's why we have the four Gospels. They present as complete of a picture as is possible within the framework of the New Testament. At the end of the Gospel of John, John says, if we wrote about everything that Jesus said and did, all the libraries of the world could not contain it. Here we go, verse 28. So Peter answered him and said, 
Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Good old Peter, always the brave, bold, brash, impulsive one. Lord, if it is you, so his, his boldness here is tempered by his doubt. And doubt is diffused when we learn to truly, wholly, completely take him at his word. What did Jesus said? It's me, it's I. Don't be afraid. Peter says, well, if it really is you. The doubt is diffused. Again, this is something we do by faith. It's an act of faith. It's a choice. It's a decision. I'm going to trust God truly, wholly, completely, absolutely. And then the doubt is diffused. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. What's he saying? I want to, I'm afraid to, but I'll do it if you make me. Have you ever thought or said, I wish God would just make me do the right thing? Why didn't he make me do the right thing? Why didn't he stop me? Again, because we're created in his image. We're free moral agents. He's given us the right and the ability to choose. But here Peter, he's struggling. If that's really Jesus, boy, would I love to walk out there and meet him. Command me to do it, Lord. Make me do it. And so he said, Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And what I love about this, what does Jesus say? Come. <laughs> what did he say to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth. You know what? Jesus is the real deal. And when you're the real deal, you don't have to work yourself into a frenzy and speak King James English. Come thou forth. Peter, walk unto me. I, I remember what the joke was. There was a joke one time. Was talking about this pastor sitting at the dinner table after church on Sunday. And he says, wouldst thou pass the salt unto me? You know what I'm talking about? Jesus wasn't like that. Where'd they get it? I don't know. So simple. Jesus' approach was always simple and straightforward. And there's so many things we can learn from him. Short and sweet. You ever find yourself in a conversation where you just wish the person would get to the point? I'm a cut to the chase kind of a guy. And one of the drawbacks to that, I've had a habit or a tendency over the years to finish people's sentences for them. I know it's kind of rude. I don't mean to do it. My wife could probably tell you all about it. She covets your prayers. I covet your prayers for her. <laughs> Jesus' approach was always simple, straightforward, short and sweet. He was all go, no show. When you have authority and you know it, Nothing else is required. So, he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water. Folks, think about this. There's only two men in all of recorded history who have accomplished this feat. And Peter's one of those guys. Now, 
after he got filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, man, he was powerful. He was dynamic. And he was such an amazing man of God that when they went to crucify him, he asked that they would please crucify him upside down because he did not deserve to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. But the things we read about with Peter in the Gospels, we have a tendency to kind of want to make fun of him or criticize him, you know, brash, impulsive, and so forth. But only two men in all of human history have accomplished this feat. And Jesus is not just a man. He's fully God and fully man. So if you want to be technical, the only normal, regular, down-to-earth, average male human being who's ever done this, and no female's done it either, by the way, is Peter. You've got to give him some credit. So he comes down out of the boat. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now you might say, well, Peter was kind of shallow in seeking, pardon the expression, um, in seeking a miracle from Jesus in order for Jesus to prove to him his identity. That might be a little shallow because who else could it be, right, walking on the water? But his love for his master cannot be denied. Going to Jesus, he gets out of the boat he heads towards Jesus. He wants to see his master. And that's always what we should be striving for as well. Sadly, how many, it's sad how many people, including some believers, spend so much time running away from God, trying to get away from him, when we should be striving to get to him. And in Peter's case, so much so that he's willing to step out way beyond his comfort zone. The water's 141 feet deep. What could possibly go wrong? Verse 30, it does go wrong, by the way. <laughs> when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me! <laughs> First of all, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you and walk on the water. Okay, come. He starts to go. Oh, no, save me! Peter made the classic mistake. So much to learn from this story, folks. Peter made the classic mistake. He took his eyes off of the Lord. I have no doubt that what happened here, he's going along, he's moving toward Jesus, and then he begins to look down. What am I doing? You ever been in that place? What am I doing? And he begins to sink. He took his eyes off of the Lord. He was instead focused on the circumstances and folks, when, folks, whenever we do that, it is inevitable that we will sink. Do you know that? When you get your eyes off of the Lord and on the circumstances, that's when you begin to sink. So beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Again, we always have to be careful to give Peter credit where credit is due. At the end of the day, Peter knew from whence cometh his help. Psalms 121.1 I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. G Peter got in trouble and he knew who to call on. Lord, save me. And folks, the good news, that is a prayer that God will always answer. And it's enough. Again, we talk about short and sweet. How many, I, I can't tell you how many times I've called out to the Lord in dangerous situations and just said, Jesus! We sang that song this morning. Jesus, I love to speak your name. There's power in that name. 
There's healing in that name. There's salvation in that name. And when you call out to him, he knows what you're talking about. You don't have to rattle on and on and on about it. Just call on him. Lord, save me. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I thought this was going to get done sooner than it's getting done. Oh, well. Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith. So even as Jesus is saving him, he's also kind of rebuking him. Why did you doubt? What caused him to sink? He began to doubt because he took his eyes off of Jesus, looking at the circumstances. But immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. When you are a child of the king, help is never more than a prayer away. I had a friend many years ago wrote a song about that. He's just a prayer away. I've experienced it so many times in my own life. Can't even count them all. He stretched out his hand, caught him, said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, God saves us because he loves us. Why did he save Peter? He loved Peter. But God chastens us because he loves us also. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So we see Jesus' love manifested in both ways. He saves Peter, but he also chastens him. Remember something here. You think, well, that's awfully harsh of Jesus. Wait. Peter had just been an active participant in the feeding of the fifteen to 20,000 people. Think about that. Not to mention the countless other miracles he had witnessed Jesus perform and had even been involved with himself. Mark 6, 7. Jesus called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So Peter had been involved in casting out demons. Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that people should repent, evangelizing. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Peter had been involved in all of this. And that's why it was not wrong for Jesus to challenge him, even as Jesus is saving him. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Think about all Peter had already been involved with and seen in his time with Jesus. Verse 1432 of Matthew, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Another instantaneous miracle, this swirling, whirling storm immediately stops. Again, another reminder, Jesus' presence has a calming effect on the storms of life. Draw near to him. He chose the exact moment at which to calm the wind after he got in the boat. Folks, he doesn't always calm it right when we think or wish that he would. And that's where faith, hope, and trust come in. It should be enough to know that he's there with us in the storm, but his presence does have a calming effect in our lives. Verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, some have stated the idea, the opinion, that there were other people in the boat with them besides the disciples. Perhaps the guy who owned the boat, maybe some of his crew, his family, whatever. And they, these commentators believe it was that group of people who stepped forward and said, Truly, you are the Son of God, because the disciples already knew that, or they should have. But either way, the acknowledgement here 
No one but God could do these things, these kinds of miracles. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going, John 6, 21. So now we're back to John, bouncing back between Matthew and John. They willing received it, willingly received him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. And so having clearly identified himself through this encounter with Peter out on the water, the calming, the sudden calming of the wind and so forth, they willingly received him into the boat. And folks, that's what everyone should do when they realize, recognize, and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who he is. You should immediately welcome him, receive him into your life. There's another old expression, he who hesitates is lost. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. This moment that we're living in right now is always the right time to get your life right with God. Some people put it off, I'm going to wait, I'm not ready, yada, yada, yada. That's not the way to do it. The time is always right now. And I think just about everybody here today knows that. But if you're somebody who doesn't, whether it's in here or online or whatever, he's proved himself over and over again. There is no rational, logical, reasonable way to explain Jesus away. He is who he says he is. He's done what he said he would do. And therefore, he's also going to do what he said he's going to do that hasn't happened yet. Make sure you get your right, life right with the Lord. Don't put it off. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Yet another miracle. They just ooze out of Jesus. We all want to experience miracles in our lives, right? Then you need to get close to the one who does them. Hello? Now, again, think about this. The wind stops. A lot of people might write that off as a coincidence, right? Oh, the wind shifted, the pattern changed, yada, yada, yada. No, it was the power of God that stopped that wind. And how did they immediately get to the place that they were supposed to go? Oh, the wind just blew them there. Really? They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden they're on the shore. You can either choose to explain it away or you can recognize the reality of what it is. It's the power of God. It's the miraculous power of God. And it's at work in people's lives every day. We just miss it a lot of the time. Stop and smell the roses. Stop and look at the miracles God's doing in your life because they're happening all the time. So let's stand. And I'll close with this comment. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. They willingly received him into the boat. When Jesus is on board, have you seen those stickers on the back of people's cars? Baby on board, boxer on board, pug on board ex-wife on board, whatever. <laughs> Whenever Jesus is on board, I don't know if I've seen one. Has anybody seen a Jesus on board sticker? There should be one. When Jesus is on board and in command, and by the way, anytime he's on board, he's in command. All right? And when that happens, when Jesus is on board and in command, you're always going to wind up in the right place. Okay? Let's bow our heads you have a prayer request raise your hand please father we lift up all these requests to you we are so thankful that you are a loving merciful faithful gracious god and you love to hear the prayers of your people we're not bothering you 
You're not too busy. Father, this is what you're all about. You're all about hearing us, listening to us, responding to us. And we pray that you'd help us to get better at listening to you as well. But we lift up now health issues represented here this morning. Lord, whether it's allergies. I know I talked to several people this morning struggling with allergies. Lord, you care about that. You told us the very hairs on our head are numbered. And you even care about the sparrow who falls from the tree. So we lift up the illnesses represented, the sicknesses, the diseases, the injuries. Thank you for those that have recovered, like Ryan Mayfield is here today after his recent bout with COVID. We thank you for that. And we pray for others that are still struggling with various afflictions. Lord, we talked so much this morning about that keeping our eyes on you, not on our circumstances, walking by faith, not by sight. Please impart faith to those who need that faith this morning to trust you for their healing. And we do pray that you pour out your spirit upon the afflicted, whether they're in this room or whether they're watching online or whether it's a friend or family member of someone here today. We lift them all up to you and we pray for healing, a healing which would result in you getting the glory, Father. Lord, we also pray for mental and emotional afflictions. Depression, anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Lord, we just lift them up to you too and ask for healing of the mind, of the heart and the mind. And Lord, I pray that you'd help those struggling in that area to reach out to you, to open themselves up to you. Lord, your word says that if we draw near to you and resist the devil, he will flee from us. We pray for that this morning. Help everyone here to draw near to you Resist the devil, and we thank you for the promise that he will flee. God, we lift up relationships, marriages, friendships. Lord, we talked about that today, being content wherever we're at. Help us to be that way. Lord, Paul said, if you're, if you're single, don't seek to be married. If you're married, don't seek to be single. Lord, and then you have free reign to do whatever you want in our lives. You can bring us a help meet, or you can keep us as a single person, whatever your will is. That's where we want to be, in the center of your will. We do pray for healing in marriages that have been damaged or broken, friendships that have been damaged or broken, work relationships, neighborhood, wherever it is, Lord. Our desire is to be instruments of your peace so that we can be a witness for you, Lord, to show people how much you love them. So we ask for healing in those relationships. And finally, we pray, especially at this time of year, the holiday season, a lot of money issues can come up. Lord, give us wisdom on how to properly use the resources you've given us not to be wasteful but to um, be cautious careful not to get caught up in the materialism of the season but help us to be a blessing to those around us and lord we pray that you provide the resources lord your word tells us that you love to give to those who give and so help us to be givers help us to learn how to give to you to your to your people Lord, so that we can be blessed by you and then continue to bless others. It's an endless cycle. But we do pray for provision for those who are struggling, that every, every rent would be met, every utility bill would be met, every grocery bill would be met. And Lord, help us to be aware of each other's needs so that we can help one another because that's what you would have us to do. We pray for encouragement, strength, and blessing upon each one here today. And please receive our final offering of worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.